to the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Our theme for this May 2016 episode is Tracing Hard to Find Ancestors. We'll start off over at the Genealogy Insider blog, where managing editor Diane Haddad will give us the latest genealogical scoop. And then we're going to jump right into our top tips segment to discuss uncovering ancestors who may be hiding in the census. And we'll do that with author David Frixell. Then in our 101 Best Website segment, we're going to dig into newspapers.com. It's a website chock full of newspaper articles that just might include tidbits on those elusive relatives that you seek. In the Family Tree University Crash Course segment, Vanessa Whelan will be back to talk about analyzing genealogical evidence. And then we'll wrap things up at the publisher's desk with Allison Dolan, who's going to give us her top three tips for outwitting elusive ancestors. There's a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Our first stop is the news from the blogosphere with Diane Haddad. We're going to kick off this episode with news from the blogosphere. And here at the Ohio Genealogical Society Conference uh, in Mason, Ohio, is Diane Haddad. She is our Genealogy Insider blogger. Hi, Diane. Hi, Lisa. It's always fun to do this in person, isn't it? I know. We're in the same room. (laughs) Same room. (laughs) And there's so much going on here at the conference. And, of course, there's always things going on in the genealogy world that you're talking about on the blog. We're talking about trying to find elusive ancestors. Um, any tie-ins there? Um, this is the place to do it if you're going to do it. I think one thing that gets overlooked because we are so focused on online research as genealogists um, is the in-person factor. Mm-hmm. When you are at a local conference like we are, you get the chance to walk up to a table of the, you know, Hamilton County Genealogical Society. That's the local society where most of my ancestors are. And the people who are with the societies generally know a lot about local records, small records that haven't made it to ancestry Mm -hmm. or family search or places where we're used to going to search online. They'll have um, indexes to these records. Oftentimes, the people who are working the booth are also the ones who maybe helped work on those indexes. They'll probably have some suggestions for you when you're looking for um, this ancestor or that ancestor. It's so true, and it's just something that just doesn't happen anywhere else except for at a conference or a seminar. And you're really bringing up a good point, which is there's the big databases and collections, but then there's all that small little niche stuff. And do you find, as you're talking with these folks, that they've got you know projects in the works, too, so you're kind of hearing what's going to be available. Sure. I know the, um, that the Hamilton County Society, they work with FamilySearch actually on indexing the records that are going to be on FamilySearch. So um, something else that I find is that the people who do a lot of research in, the, in that area and that work with the societies, they'll just no names. Like you can say, oh, I have this family or that family, and they might know of, oh, yeah, so-and-so is researching that family. Or, you know, I wonder if you're related to this person or that person. So it's really helpful to get that kind of in-person feedback on your problems. Um, 
I think it's important to remember that when you're presenting your your problem ancestor to kind of try to keep it brief and, you know, mention the name and a little bit about what you know and then see what the other person has to say. And some of these societies do publish some of their own publications, like you say, kind of niche things. So I've seen a couple of tables where they've had things available right here at the conference Mm -hmm. and I'm guessing that they would also know what else they may have available back at the office. Right and in a lot of counties they've experienced record losses due to fires or you know in the Hamilton County I've been talking about there was a courthouse riot that destroyed a lot of records and so the local society has newspaper indexes to marriages and deaths and you know other types of records that can help you get around that kind of record loss. That brings you back to that such important thing to remember which is it's no fun to look for something that doesn't exist right right and you walk up and they can tell you oh no 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 that's not available because we had this riot looking for that one (laughs) yeah i mean what a time saver and a help um how how great so i think we're both are you headed to ngs or i know i'm going to the national Mm -hmm. conference or will you be reporting from your offices here in cincinnati i will be monitoring things closely from my desk we do have um a couple of our team will be headed to florida and so i'm excited to see some of the announcements from um the genealogical organizations that come out of that conference fantastic well it's been a treat to be here in person with you thanks so much we'll talk to you next month sounds good In this episode's Top Tips segment, I've invited David Frixell back to the show to give us some tips on how to find our ancestors that just seem to be hiding in the census. And this all comes from his article, which appears in the May-June 2016 issue, aptly called Hiding in the Census. Welcome back, Dave. Thanks for having me. You know, it can be really disheartening to find that an ancestor is just seems to be hiding that they are nowhere to be found in census records, particularly, I think, when you feel really confident that you know where they should be and the time frame, and and, and they're just not where you think they would be. So take us through it. I know you've identified some of the most common reasons why this happens. What are those? Well, you're right. It's so frustrating. You know, know they've got to be there somewhere, you figure. Yeah. And, you know, you're trying dutifully to march them back through the census, and then, boom, there's this, this gap. And they, they should be there, you know, even maybe where they lived. And it's just, so, it's just so frustrating. Well, of course, we're mostly relying, if you're searching in the census, we're mostly, first of all, relying on transcriptions. And so it's mm-hmm. always possible that somebody who uh, is doing the transcription has made some sort of error. I mean, the uh, one I always talk about is my great third great grandfather, whose name was James M. Lowe, L-O-W-E. And in the indexes of the 1850 census, he shows up as L-O-W-D, as in David. And you'd think that'd be an mm-hmm. easy um, mistake to overcome, but just the, it happens that the way that the searches work in most of the uh, sites, L-O-W-D does not show up as an alternative. And so the way I finally found around it was using wildcards. And there are all kinds of, you know, that's a whole article in itself is how to use wildcards. But basically that if you can use a question mark or an asterisk, depending on the site and what you're looking for, sometimes you can get around uh, those transcription errors, which otherwise are just very frustrating kind of, you know, dead ends. 
Exactly. And just to clarify for those listening that, you know, you're talking about transcriptions and we know when we look at the census, we're looking at um, perhaps a digitized version of the microfilm of the original, but we're, as far as the search engine goes on these websites, those are relying on the transcriptions, aren't they? That's somebody else who has interpreted what they think they're seeing on that digitized document. And to be fair, if you've looked at those, it's it can be really hard sometimes to yeah. pull those out. And if you're not someone who knows that particular family, of course, it's even harder. Um, you know, so uh, finding if they if there is a transcription error, you have, sometimes have to get sort of sneaky. You might try searching a different database, because sometimes they have different transcriptions. Um, sure. Family search in particular seems to have sometimes different ones than some of the more other ones. Um, you, and then if you're really stuck, though, you know, try looking for somebody else, either in the same household or relatives or neighbors. You know, look for somebody who has an unusual name. Uh, I'm lucky I have a lot of unusual names in my mom's family. I have uh, Ladoiska and a Sophia Nesba, and a Camillus, <laughs> and Z- Zilfia, and all kinds of great names that are easier to look for sometimes than James, you know. Awesome. So, well, there's three strategies right there. We're talking about using wildcards, which might hold the place of a, of a name, or, or particularly letters within the name, and maybe looking for other people who are somehow related to the person that you're looking for. And your third one well, looking for um, other uh, people who might be in, you know, in the same household with different names. Now, it's also possible that the problem is not the transcription. It could be your ancestors. Uh, that is, sometimes they just change their names. It, you know, today, if you want to change your name, it's a big deal. But back then, it'd be like, oh, you know, I don't really want to go by that name anymore. Or, you know, <laughs> they, they obviously were much more casual about it. So, you know, I... I have an ancestor, Edward Updegrove, and at one point in the 1810 to 1830 census, three of his sons decided, you know, that's just too long. They became groves. So oh, interesting. I could be looking for Updegroves, you know, I'll find blue in the face, and they're just groves. Um, I had one who had a, another of my Z's, wonderful name, Zebulon M. Pike Clough. Wonderful wow. name. Unfortunately... Yeah. After a few sentences, he thought that was just too complicated, and he became just Pike Clough. So all my looking for Zebulon, you know, uh, or it could be that they got married. If it was, mm-hmm. Or you know, they got widowed, remarried. I was looking for my wife's ancestor, Alice Hollingworth, and she vanished from the census after um, her husband, James Jones, died. So there was no Alice Jones I could find. Well, she was now Alice Jefferson. She'd remarried by 1850. She's there in the census, but, you know, who knew that she had a, a different husband? Right. So it sounds like maybe a way to get around that, but that Zebulon M. Pike cloth would be maybe you just search on Zebulon and then just search on Pike and cloth. I mean, kind of break it up, right? And right. See maybe and so, what happened. And sometimes, you know, you can, again, you can search for other people in the household or their children you can search for, you know, very other specifics like by dates, you know, and try to narrow down, um, you know. So I might have searched for all of the people with the last name Clough in all of Alabama who were born in this range of years. You know, you sometimes have to yes. go to cast a very wide net and then keep narrowing it to make sure that you're not missing your hiding ancestor. Absolutely. Now, number three in this article 
boy, we see this a lot, right? It's age discrepancies. And that just kind of can throw you for a loop. And people either just weren't very aware of their ages or when they were born or didn't (laughs) care or just out and out lied. My wife had a couple uh, in her family who were twins who kept getting younger as time went on, you know. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Um, And one was a little more aggressive than the other, so they were like, 20 years different by the time they, you know, in their last census, but, uh, oh my goodness. you know, so if you can't find them, you know, by that age searching strategy, or it doesn't seem like this person matches in every other way, but the age is wrong. Consider the possibility of the age, you know, that either they were lying or um, mistaken, you know, confused. Say any dates, you know, are like that. My, uh, great-grandfather, there are three different dates for, uh, you know, when he came to America uh, on three different censuses. If I'd been searching by that, I would have, you know, never found him. Oh, yeah. Well, and I imagine it's who the census taker catches to get the information from, how the census taker hears the information, right? So many possibilities. And of course, with the census, you have to keep in mind, even if their date is accurate, depends on when the census was taken, and so, you know, the, the fact that they are 10 years old in 1860 doesn't mean necessarily they were born in 1850, because it would have depended on when they mm-hmm. actually turned 10. So if you go all out and try to find 1850, and, and then where are they? Well, you know, the census was taken, let's say, June 1st. So you have sort of actually a half-year swing in effect there that you might have to take into account. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and there's geography, where people are located. And so often, you know, I have one set of great grandparents, and I just know where they're supposed to be, but they are not there. And, you know, I suppose people could have been caught kind of in transit. You know, if they're moving from one place to another, they just get missed. Or, you know, they are not where you expect them to be. Yeah. And, you know, you you assume... Um, I mean, I, my fourth great grandmother, um, Mary Phillips, who became another cluff, um, she was in Alabama where she was supposed to be. And then she wasn't after 1830. It's like, what the heck happened? She wound up in Texas of all places with one of her kids, not my direct ancestor. So I, that's why I hadn't found her before. So you sometimes you have to look at collateral relatives and sometimes older relatives got sort of fobbed off from one or the other. So they're at right. number one, and then 10 years later, they've moved in with, you know, the son's gotten rid of them and, <laughs> and with the daughter. Now. <laughs> and, you know, that's so true, because I think once one of the spouses is lost, then I think that person becomes much more likely to be jumping around. I know my husband's great-great-great-grandfather w- talked about how he would spend every three months, he'd go from one kid to the next and he just had his rotation <laughs> so it, you could you could actually end up in the census twice or not at all well and the, yeah exactly there is the opposite issue my father um i discovered when i saw the got the 1940 census came out um he got somehow enumerated in moline illinois with his in his parents household and also in las cruces new mexico where he'd just taken a teaching job so he mm. actually shows up twice which is better than not at all you know, but uh, it, you might think, are there two Don Frixels or what's going on here? Right, right. Now, that, so that's four items. The fifth one you have in your article is about untimely deaths. People just may have passed away before the next census taken, right? And this was a pretty easy fix if the timing is right. That mm-hmm. the 1850, 60, 70, and 80 censuses had mortality schedules. So um, you have to check those to see if, 
person died, basically if they just missed the census date and, you know, had the misfortune to die on you, then, you know, don't give up hope that they, they may indeed have uh, gotten enumerated in the mortality schedules. And that might be a new term for somebody who's fairly new to research, which is mortality schedules. These We're not talking about the population schedule, but the mortality schedule. You have a link in the article, which is great, where you can kind of go learn more about that and see particularly one of the databases that Ancestry has for that. But finally, we might have the opposite problem of not too few, but way too many. How do we deal it's with that? It's just as bad, you know, to have yeah. too many, you have you know, 14 candidates to be great-grandpa instead of none, um, you know, how do they find them? There it's sort of a matter of narrowing them down. And so geographic plausibility, if the family had always been in Alabama and you find, you know, one of your candidates is in California, that's less likely. It's not impossible, mm-hmm. as we've seen. Look for other relatives. You know, again, the neighbors, you know, might, might be the same to help you figure out. Uh, you could also try non-census records. I mean, I talk about how I had two Abraham Stowe possibilities as an ancestor in early North Carolina censuses, and I found a a marriage record for an Abraham Stowe Jr. listing a bondsman who was my ancestor. And so I thought, okay, that one, that means it's probably his brother, and so Abraham Stowe Sr. is dad, and so that's the right Abraham Stowe. You know, again, right. the two with same names, both in North Carolina, they're in different counties. That was the only, you know, so I think of them as the, you know, the Surrey County Abraham um, turns out to be the, I think, the right one. Um, but that's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sometimes what you're going to have to do is uh, try and look for clues to figure out, okay, I found him in the census, but I've got four of them, which is the, <laughs> which is the one that I really want to have. And that's where it really comes home that, it's not just a single person we're looking for. It's really that person within the relationships they have and within the context of their environment. They are more than just them. And that's a wonderful way to define who's who. Um, David has so many great ideas in this article. And uh, the, the last one, he's got topics, uh, the topic of missing or damaged pages, how to deal with that, 10 search and recover census strategies, and lots of online resources, plus examples, which I love because Dave, it's so much easier to really see how this is going to work when, when you have these real life examples that you share in the article. Uh, these are terrific strategies and hopefully are going to help uncover some of these hiding ancestors. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. In this 101 Best Websites for Tracing Your Roots segment, we're going to be talking with Jim Beidler, and our focus is on newspapers at newspapers.com. Hi, Jim. Hello, Lisa. How are you doing? Doing great. So great. glad to have you back on the show. We're talking about a whole new subject, which is newspapers, and more specifically, how they can assist us in finding those really elusive ancestors, the ones who are giving us a little bit of uh, trouble. And newspapers.com is really one of the, the newest websites out there, um, owned by Ancestry, and that in itself causes a little bit of confusion. Maybe you can help us sort out, we know there are newspapers on Ancestry. What's the difference? Well, newspapers on Ancestry, including a, a large obituary collection, 
are some of their their databases. But uh, they have started a, a completely separate website called newspapers.com. has thousands of titles, millions of newspaper pages uh, that are completely digitized and, and searchable. And so this is, you know, you know, Ancestry kind of, kind of has, uh, you know, it, it it contracts everything into one big subscription, then it spins things off and or buys new things, uh, and and uh, creates new entities. Well, you know, they they're kind of in the creating new entity stage right now, and newspapers.com is is one of them, and you know, it has has a lot, like I say, thousands of, uh, of newspaper titles. One one thing that I wish is that they had um, longer runs of the newspapers. In many cases, they'll only have 20, 30 years of a, of a particular title. Uh, and that's probably you know, due to who, whoever held microfilms that they now have converted to, to digital matter because uh, there's, very, there's very little in the way of, of uh, creating digital from original newspapers at this point. For the most part, it's microfilm to digital transfer. Interesting. So that's, that is a good reminder. When Just because we're seeing the title of the paper that we were in search of, we have to get time frame too and double-check that they have what we need. I know when I was talking to them, I, I ran into the guys from newspapers.com at a conference, and they were saying that when they started the site, that they copied everything off of Ancestry, put it on in newspapers, and then from that point forward, all new digitization was going strict, strictly to newspapers. So I think, would you agree that you're pretty safe to check your Ancestry subscription first, and if you don't see it there, and then you find it on newspapers, you know you're not, in a sense, duplicate purchasing, that you are getting it there, that you checked Ancestry first, you're good. Oh, absolutely. And, and yeah, it's, I mean, it's only uh, $39.95 or whatever a year for, for newspapers.com. And I, I think that at that price, it provides pretty outstanding value. Because even even with the, the short runs that I'm complaining about, uh, you can, can find uh, some ancestors in, in those time periods for the geographic areas covered by the specific newspapers and uh, finds probably some some very interesting facts about your ancestors. And that brings us back to these elusive ones. Um, I know you speak about newspapers around the country, and what is it? Help make the case why it's worth the, the search into newspapers, which is sometimes more challenging than vital records because they are, like, all over the map and all over, you know, they're, produced by private organizations versus a government agency starting from this date forward, we now do civil registrations. So it is a bit of a challenge. Um, what is it that, it that newspapers are going to do for us in terms of these really kind of folks that we're getting stuck with? Well, uh, you know, you go, you go back uh, to the first half of the 1900s, let alone earlier, and newspapers are really the social media uh, that people used, you know. Whereas now you may uh, post a, a photo or tell about your your latest meal on Facebook. Well, that was in the newspaper right. in the 1900s and the 1800s. Who was visiting who? And I, I have a, a great great grandfather who is a stonemason. Well, I think just about every job that he did of stonemason work ended up in the the Reading, Pennsylvania Eagle oh, wow. newspaper. In part, probably because he had a nephew who was a 
a stringer, the sl- slang for newspaper correspondence of the day. And so I think I think he he uh, covered his uncle rather meticulously. <laughs> Lucky you. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. That's interesting. The social media of the 19th century, but very true. I've seen birthday parties and, you know, who's visiting a town and where they were going to go visit. Mm-hmm. So all of those things. And uh, wouldn't you agree that, gosh, finally, for the small town ancestor, they really can be a boon. Well, yeah. And, of course, the, the country song goes, everyone dies famous in a small town. But for the reality in newspapers in the, in the 19th century is they didn't just die famous in a small town. You know, you know pretty much all their comings and goings uh, are going to be uh, chronicled over the years. And you said earlier, which is very true, that a lot of people find newspaper research a little more perplexing than things like vital records. And, and while, yes, it's true that newspapers have the reputation of being the rough draft of history, uh, and yes, they are prone to some errors, well, it's not as if vital records are not prone to any errors Absolutely. either. Yeah. So, so really, and one of, the things, one of the neat things you can do in newspapers is you're not just relying on one particular article, but you follow an ancestor through time, and some of those, that erroneous information will get corrected mm-hmm. in follow-up stories. So true. And I love using my existing primary source documents as leads to go back to the paper and back it up. Oh, my gosh. I know looking at a naturalization record from my great-grandfather and going, wait a second. I'm going to go check the county newspaper. And sure enough, there was a photo of him on the front page with all the others, hands on their heart, being naturalized. It's exciting. So, see, I love it. I agree. Newspapers are awesome. And so is Jim Beidler. Thank you, Jim, for being here on the show. Thank you so much, Lisa. Well, in this episode, we're talking about tracing your hard-to-find ancestors. And, of course, at Family Tree University, there is a class that can help us do that. And it's all about analyzing genealogical evidence. Here to tell us all about it and hopefully give us some tips from that class is Vanessa Whelan. She is the dean at Family Tree University. Hi, Vanessa. Hi there, Lisa. You know, we always get to talk behind the scenes because you helped me actually, you know, publish the podcast and get it out there on the web. But I love having you here because this sounds like a really neat class. And I think it's a perfect fit for what we're talking about today. What are some of the things? Maybe you've got some some tips because I know you've been through these courses. Right. Well, the beauty of it is that I actually get to look at the courses when I edit the courses. So I get to learn from them. And one of the things that seems so obvious to me in retrospect that I picked up from this course is that is asking who the informant is, who is actually putting the information in these resources, and what would be their motivations, which is a really interesting thing. It sounds all very, you know, CSI, but it's a very simple thing. Sometimes people have reasons for, say, fudging their age on a census. So that's one of the things that I picked up, and I've started applying that to everything that I do that's... And, you know, it's amazing how much it will make you reevaluate your research. And that leads to other ideas. It leads to other research avenues, Mm -hmm. paper trails. So that's great. So when we're talking about an informant, we're saying that if we're looking at a death record and there's a witness or the informant in that case might be the physician. But if it's out in a rural area, it just might be the neighbor. I mean, we, we don't know who it is, but you can research them then as well as 
who the document is about. It's interesting. I know in looking at the census record, oftentimes I find myself detouring because I'm looking up who the census enumerator was. And sometimes it was the local doctor or it was um, just a gal who knew everybody or it was the mayor. I mean, there's all kinds of variations, but it's really fascinating because it does give you a perspective. What, what perspective are they coming from? Well, exactly. And that's the interesting thing because somebody who might be a very reliable informant in one aspect, even on the same record, might not be so reliable in another respect. Um, You know, in the case of, for example, a death record, in fact, um, somebody might have a lot of knowledge about, say, that person that they married. If it's, you know, if it's the wife writing about the husband's death, she might have a lot of good information about them. That doesn't necessarily mean she knows everything about their family. So when it says father's father, you know, or things like that. It's a big grain of salt. (laughs) Exactly. And so that's one of those things that you have to evaluate each source and the informant and where they're coming from and how much, how close they are to the situation. That would be the other aspect for it for me is did they fill out this form two days ago? You know, was it immediately after the event or was it 10 years after the event? So you're analyzing not only who the informant is, but now what date are they putting on this? You know, how far removed are they? Exactly. So those are some of the things to think about. And, you know, even if they were, were they actually present at the time? I was present at my birth. That doesn't necessarily mean I could tell you with great detail about it. But the doctor or my mother, I'm sure they have a lot of information and remember it a lot better than I do. That's a great point. Um, Any other tips that you feel like we could grab onto right away? I would say that the best part of the course for me really was digging deep into how analyzing the evidence can help you find the gaps in your research. Um, You might find out what you know from what you don't or vice versa. You look at this and say oh, well now that I put this record next to this record next to this record now I'm seeing exactly where the hole is in my research and what I need to look for next. And I like the holes because I think those are the opportunities, right? Those are the avenues you go, okay, now if I go work and fill that in, that may really help it all come together. I mean, these are all great tips and tell us about the course because I know it's coming up, right? Right, it is. We have another one coming up shortly and the best thing it does is it gives you not only these types of information but and how to look at your information in new ways but it gives you tools and resources that are available to do so um, there's four lessons to it and each one covers something a little bit different and really helps you dig deep into your research that you have and so this is an online course self-paced it's four weeks so even if you get a little bit of a late start you can still jump in there and then the big benefit is that you have a live instructor to tap into as well in that message form absolutely that's probably for me the best part of it is that you can ask questions on the discussion forum you can get answers you can see what other people in the course are asking as well and have discussions with your fellow students so you really get that interaction aspect and sometimes you can problem solve and brainstorm with a group in a way that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do even on your own That's so true. Well, the class is called Analyzing Genealogical Evidence. And, of course, in the show notes, we're going to have details about the one next one coming up. Thanks so much, Vanessa. I appreciate it. Thank you. So we are back once again. We are at the OGS, which is the Ohio Genealogical Society Conference. And I think we found a good, quiet, little tucked away spot. I'm here with Allison Dolan, and we are going to visit 
the virtual publisher's desk at the Ohio Genealogical Society Publisher Desk. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. Uh, so, Allison, we've been talking about, you know, finding these elusive ancestors, and, and you told me you had your top three tips for finding elusive ancestors, and I'm excited to hear them. What's tip number one? Well, the first tip is researching sideways. So, we all reach that point where we just cannot find anything else on this certain ancestor that we're looking for, right? Oh, yes. The paper trail just vanishes. Well, one of the most effective ways that I can find to get around that quickly is to start researching the other people that that ancestor associates with. So siblings are my first place that I go to, but then it might be cousins or business partners or neighbors. Typically, if I keep looking sideways and going every possible direction sideways, I will find someone who has a record that will mention my ancestor and give me some much needed information to kickstart that research on him again. Yeah, and and you make a good point. It's not always somebody who's actually related to them because we do spend a lot of time in our lives with other people at work, in organizations, uh, through school, whatever. And like you say, finding them could lead you back. The trail just winds back around. I love that. Yeah, so that's my first strategy that I always go to. Now, the second one is making a timeline. It's amazing to me how often I think I have more information than I do. (laughs) And when I put it all together in chronological order and just kind of sketch it out in a timeline, I can see immediately where I have gaps, where I have holes I need to fill, and also where I have conflicting information that may be pointing me in the wrong direction. And so being able to pinpoint those things will also help jumpstart my search in a different way. Yeah, with Vanessa and I were talking about that, that sometimes the gaps are the biggest opportunities, and they're not always visible. So when you do a timeline, do you have a favorite way? I mean, are you using an Excel spreadsheet? Are you drawn on a piece of paper? Or do you use one of these, these timeline software programs? <laughs> Great question. Actually, a, a little bit of all of the above, depending upon how detailed I need to get. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been known to just take the back of a piece of paper that I have sitting around and just start sketching things out um, to try and identify something really quick. But, you know, as a more thorough and methodical approach, I think an Excel spreadsheet is a really helpful way to go. It can kind of be like a different form of a research log in a way Mm -hmm. where you can really drill down and get specific and sort. um, Sort, and you can even color code, right? I mean, when you're working on a a more complex project, you know, and you know you're going to have to come back to it, it's kind of nice. You can build on it. Absolutely. The color coding is an excellent suggestion, um, and you can categorize things as well. You can add as many call as you need to to kind of get everything there in front of you so you had us going sideways and now you got us lining all up what's what's number three well number three may seem a little counterintuitive but it's actually to put the problem aside take a break so often I find that I can get too immersed in a problem that I just sort of run out of steam and that if I put it aside for a while I can come back to it with fresh eyes or conversely it may be that a resource that I need has I haven't found it yet or I in the meantime I can learn more information that will help me 
inform my perspective on the problem that I was facing originally. And with that new information, the path becomes more clear. Um, so really just taking a break, I find, is a pretty effective way <laughs> to eventually... I like it. Path. So you heard that from Allison. We have permission <laughs> to set it down and take a break. And and like you say, it's amazing how when you've worked on something for so long, and, and it does feel like your brain starts closing down a little bit. And just that, even just the next morning could really be nice. Yeah, it, it. I think that there's never any shortage of ancestors to research or problems to overcome. So putting one aside for a little bit and focusing it on another, it doesn't hurt anything. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, come back fresh. Well, I love it. Okay, so three top tips. There you are to, to kind of finish up the episode um, and give you a new perspective on some of those hard-to-find ancestors. Thank you so much, Allison, and I will... Uh, talk to you again next month. You'll be back in the office and we will have just come back from the National Genealogical Society Conference. There'll be so much more to talk about. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me for this May 2016 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Here are a couple of action items for you until we meet here again next month. First, be sure and check out the May-June 2016 issue of Family Tree Magazine. It includes that article by David Frixell called Hiding in the Census. You'll find that at shopfamilytree.com. And then head over to familytreemagazine.com slash podcast. That's where you'll find the show notes for this episode. It's the webpage devoted to everything we talked about, and it includes links to all the websites that we mentioned. Thanks again for joining me today. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I invite you to visit me at my website, genealogygems.com, where you can listen to my free podcast, the Genealogy Gems Podcast, which is also available for free through iTunes, and we have an app for that. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.